Hey guys, it's Clayton Kershaw here. The reason I have hope in God is because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And that is it. That is as simple as that. And it is such a, uh, a freeing feeling. It is such a, um, a hopeful feeling because of what Christ did for us. And um, it's, it's not based on anything that we did. It's, no, the, it's not a merit-based system in Christianity to believe, to have eternal life with God. And, um, that should be a freeing feeling for us. I know that is for me. And one of my favorite verses is Romans 3.23. And it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And um, that sums it up right there, guys. Jesus died for us. He took our sins with Him. And all we have to do is believe in Him to have faith and to have hope. And that's the moral of the story. Clayton Kershaw now has the most strikeouts in all of postseason history. And he's also a World Series champion. Yay, Dodgers. Uh, another of my heroes are Bill and Ann Clemmer. And they are our Purpose Church missionaries. They just finished being part of a team that defeated, defeated Ebola in the Congo. And now they're headed to South Sudan uh, to fight maternity and infant mortality. And wherever they go, they share Jesus. And your giving through Purpose Church helps to make that happen. Your giving helped to defeat Ebola in the Congo and now is doing that good work in the South Sudan. So I am so grateful for your faithful giving, how God is using you even during a pandemic. I praise God for you and thank you so very, very much. Now, today we're starting a new series from the book of Daniel called Thriving in Babylon. And first, we're going to look at 10 election action steps to take to prepare for Tuesday. And then we're going to pivot and start our series on Daniel, How to Thrive in Babylon After the Election. Because regardless of who wins on Tuesday, we will still be in Babylon on Wednesday. Babylon represents a culture that is anti-God, and the New Jerusalem in the Bible is a symbol for heaven. So Babylon is a symbol uh, for a culture that is anti-God. Uh, New, New Jerusalem in the Bible is a symbol for heaven. Now, as the election approaches, uh, I don't know about you, but you can also feel powerless, especially if you're in a blue, deep blue state like we are here in California, or a deep red state like the state of Wyoming. Uh, if we lived in a swing state like Pennsylvania or Arizona, we would feel more powerful. I've spent the past couple of months asking myself the question, I wonder how the people in Pennsylvania are feeling about the issues. Uh, I have a niece in Hershey, Pennsylvania. She's an executive uh, for the Hershey Chocolate Company. And on Thursday, I caught myself asking myself the question, I wonder how uh, Janie and Tim are going to vote in the election because they live in a swing state, the ultimate swing state of Pennsylvania. But I want to give you 10 practical election action steps so that we don't have to feel powerless this upcoming week. The first one is be the referee. And this is an analogy, an illustration from Tony Evans, who is a absolutely tremendous pastor in Dallas. And it's an NFL football illustration. And he says that voting uh, um, uh, for a Christian, as a Christian, voting is like an NFL game. 
In an NFL game, there are two teams and they have two different sets of personnel and they have two different goal posts, two different goals uh, that they're heading to in two different directions, uh, two teams. But then there is a third team uh, that is coming as a representative from 345 Park Avenue in New York City. They're sent from the NFL commissioner, and the NFL commissioner's office is 345 Park Avenue in New York City, and they're sent as representatives of the NFL commissioner in order to bring order to the chaos of the game. They wear uh, black and white jerseys. They are the referees. They are given a book, which is the NFL rule book, and uh, they apply the rules on the field in order to bring order out of chaos. And sometimes they are booed for their decisions. And sometimes they are cheered for their decisions. But it doesn't matter because they don't live for the crowd. They don't even live uh, to operate under the authority of either of the teams. They have a higher authority, the NFL commissioner, that they represent on the field. And that is what the church is supposed to be during an election season. Um, Tony Evans goes on to ask, what if the referees took off their uh, black and white kingdom jerseys and put on the jersey for one or the other team? In the same way, what if the church took off our kingdom jerseys? We are answerable to a higher kingdom, to a higher calling, to uh, God in heaven, in headquarters. Yeah, God is the, like the NFL commissioner, and uh, headquarters is like uh, New York City. And we represent uh, heaven. We represent God and his final authority. And, and we uh, answer to a higher authority. Well, what if they, the referees took off their uh, black and white jerseys and put on uh, one of the jerseys of the other teams? And what if we as the church take off our kingdom jersey and put on the Democrat jersey or the Republican jersey? Uh, what if we picked parts of the rule book of God's word, the Bible, we picked, what if the referees picked part of the, uh, the rule book that they liked and they ignored the parts of the rule book that they didn't like? And so that leads us to step two. We are to vote biblically. We are to be the referees. We answer uh, to a different authority. Uh, we answer to a different kingdom authority with the book supplied to us by the king. And we apply those uh, to what we see during the election season. So first of all, we're to be the referee. And secondly, we are to vote biblically. Now, first of all, we're supposed to vote. Make sure you vote between now uh, Tuesday. Make sure you go out and vote. That's part of our Christian responsibility. James Dobson writes, in a world that might say one vote doesn't matter, it does matter because each person is of infinite worth and value to God. Your vote is a declaration of importance as a person and as a citizen. So we are to vote, but then secondly, we are to vote biblically. Uh, Tim Keller uh, says that there are four issues, four main biblical issues uh, that have to do with how we vote. And they're in alphabetical order here. Abortion, um, concern for the marginalized and the oppressed, uh, concern for marriage and family issues, and racial justice. Those are the big four biblical issues. Now, they're not the only issues. Uh, they're not the only issues we should be concerned about, but they should be the most 
important issues uh, that we're concerned with, those big four. And so we're to be the referee, not a part of one team or the other. Uh, We're to be the referee between the two teams. We're to vote biblically. And then number three, to make sure that we're on the right side. Joshua chapter five says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he was about to go into battle, uh, Israel against the, uh, the city of Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Okay, um, this, is, this is God here. This is Jesus, a pre-incarnate time when Jesus came into world history uh, before the manger in Bethlehem. Uh, He he comes, as as we're going to see, as the commander of the Lord's hosts, and this is a pre-incarnate visitation by Jesus. And he looks at him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua said, this would be a handy guy to have as we go into battle. And so he says to him, are you on our side? Uh, Can you be on my side? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And then verse 14, he says, neither. Neither, he replied. I'm not on anybody's side. I love how it says it in the old King James translation. Nay, (laughs) nay, is what it says in that old-fashioned translation. Neither. In some other translations, he simply says, no, neither, No, nay, I'm not on anybody's side, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And so we're to not ask, is God on my side as I go in and root for one candidate or the other, but am I on God's side? God is a kingdom independent. God is not Republican. God is not Democrat. He is a kingdom independent. And those that follow him should be kingdom independents as well. And then a fourth action step is to pray. To pray. Um, I'm sure that like me, you can say, I, I have never prayed for anything. I've never prayed for our nation like I've prayed for our nation over the last two or three months. I, I I have prayed, so many people have told me the same from our church family. We are just begging God, oh God, thy will be done. I had a unique, our family had a unique experience on Sunday night. Uh, Sunday night, we were visiting for the weekend in Washington, D.C., with uh, our daughter, Abby, and son-in-law, Kenny, and our uh, granddaughters, Felicity and Avonlea. And because of Kenny and Abby's work, uh, they got an invitation, an opportunity to take the kids trick-or-treating at the White House on Sunday night. And they asked, well, can, Abby said, can my parents come along? Can the grandparents tag along? And so, yes, we could come on along as well. Uh, so here we are, trick-or-treating at the White House. There's the White House uh, there in the background and uh, got a chance to do that. But the most special moment for me, other than seeing, obviously, the grandchildren uh, trick or treat, 
But other than that, Kimberly and I, here's a picture of Kimberly and, and me in, in front of the Oval Office. So we're just about 50 feet or so, and that's the Oval Office right there. The, uh, the Rose Garden is right over here, and there's the Oval Office, and it was at night, and the light's on there in the Oval Office, and we, and we knew the president was there because his motorcade had come by earlier as we were staying, staying, standing in line. Uh, Kimberly thought she saw somebody in there. I never saw anybody in there. Um, we had just missed the president and first lady passing out candy about 15 minutes uh, before we got there. Missed them by about 15 minutes. Uh, but just, I had a chance. Kimberly moved on with the grandchildren. And I just had a chance to stand there by myself. There was a Secret Service agent there. But just to stand by myself in the quietness of that moment, right next to the Oval Office. And it was an emotional moment for me. I just began to cry out to God. Oh, God, it, I just felt God's Holy Spirit just like, like fall on me. I just felt this anointing to stand there and to cry out to God, oh God, please put the person in that oval office that you want for the next four years. We, we can't get you on our side. We want to be on your side. We want to be the referee. We want to vote biblically, and we, and we want to say uh, that we're not trying to get you to be on our side. We want to be on your side. Oh, God, put in the Oval Office for the next four years exactly who you want. And here's the verse that I prayed uh, when I did that. It's Proverbs 21, verse 1, and I love it in the old King James translation. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And how I particularly love to say it, Luis Palau, I heard him speak when I was in college, and Luis Palau is considered the Billy Graham. Uh, here's Billy Graham, but he's called the Billy Graham of South America. He's from Argentina, and he is considered to South America, South and Central America, what Billy Graham is to North America. That's what he was uh, for Central and South America. And I heard him speak, and I've never forgotten the Bible verse because he kept saying Proverbs 21, verse 1. And he would do hand motions when he would do it. The heart of the king, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. And on Tuesday, because we're a democracy, the, the king is the people. It's, it's in a democracy, we all vote. And so I began to pray, oh God, we that are voting on Tuesday, well, can our heart be in your hand and will you turn it wherever you will? But then after Tuesday, now the person we select to be in that Oval Office, oh God, now that president, the heart of the president is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wills. One quick commercial. Tomorrow night at 6 o'clock, 6 p.m. out on the community terrace, uh, there will be a group. I was there last Monday night, and there will be a group there for one final prayer meeting. We've been meeting on Monday nights uh, to pray for the election and pray for our nation. One more chance to do that, 6 p.m. tomorrow night, Monday night, the night before the election. Would love to have you there as we pray together. Oh, God, thy will be done. And then number three is to get involved. 
And I, uh, through this whole election season, has something been tugging on your heart to maybe get more involved in, in, in politics, to get more involved and maybe run for office yourself? I was so proud when I filled out my ballot this past week that do you know of the 12 political races, excluding the propositions, of the 12 political races uh, that I was voting on uh, for, to put people in office, four of the 12, a third of them had someone in that political race who was a part of the Purpose Church family. Four out of 12, a third. And then more than half, seven of the 12 political races that I uh, voted on, over half of them, seven out of 12, had someone running for each of those uh, 12 offices, seven of the 12, who had at least attended our church, had attended Purpose Church. And it's just so great to see followers of Christ involved in politics. And maybe that's what God is gonna call you to do at some point in the future. And then number six, uh, be humble. Uh, we can be wrong on all kinds of things, can't we? And, and when we vote, we should be very, very humble before the Lord and say, you know, I don't have a corner on all truth. Uh, we can be wrong on things. Let me ask you a question. How many of you uh, have ever changed a political position over your lifetime? I know that I, I have. Uh, and I bet you have as well, have changed a political position. I've changed several of my political uh, positions over my lifetime. Because we can be so sure that we're right, and then a new piece of information can come in, and we discover we're not as right as we thought we were. Uh, you, I've read this before. You all know this is one of my favorite poems. It's called The Cookie Thief. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight, she hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as can be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read Munch Cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known what she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned in despair. Then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Isn't it interesting how just one piece of new information can change everything? And so as we approach politics, we should always approach it with a sense of humility. Uh, Proverbs 18, verse 17, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems to be right, 
until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Paul writes to the Romans, he said in chapter 14, verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? How many times have we seen during this election season treating somebody who votes differently than we do with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And then number seven, be realistic. Now, I am talking to myself here. I know that you are realistic. I I know that. Um, But I'm just talking to myself and you can listen in. I'm telling myself, Glenn, be realistic. Uh, And here's what I'm saying to myself. If my candidate wins on Tuesday, Glenn, be realistic. It's not going to usher in the new Jerusalem. (laughs) Okay. If my candidate wins on Tuesday, it is not going to usher in the new Jerusalem. You know, one of the benefits of getting older is that you begin to see a pattern over time. And if you're a conservative, uh, you maybe thought that the new Jerusalem would be ushered in when President Reagan or President Bush became president. And it didn't happen, did it? Or if you're a liberal, maybe you thought the new Jerusalem would be ushered in when President Clinton or President Obama became president. It didn't happen, did it? Now, please, please, don't get me wrong. I believe that Tuesday's election is a big, big deal. I believe that the consequences are going to be huge and that the future direction of our country is at stake. I believe it is a big, big deal how the elections uh, turn out uh, on Tuesday. But the only permanent change is going to happen when Jesus becomes the king of this world. The only real change is going to happen when Jesus becomes the king of our nation and the king of this world. Uh, Revelation 18 talks about that day. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The old order uh, that is anti-God, the old culture is gone. And in its place, in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then number eight, embrace the outcome of the election. Oh, you say, Pastor Glenn, you're going too far now. Um, As a matter of fact, where you are, in your living room or watching online or wherever you might be, um, uh, say these words out loud with me, will you? Easier said than done. Easier said than done. Embrace the outcome of the election. I know it's hard uh, coming from me, so let me have somebody say it who's way better looking than me and way cooler than me. Here's a quote this last week from Matthew McConaughey. He says, embrace the results of the 2020 presidential election, whichever way it goes. Okay, now it gets hard. Now, it doesn't get hard Today, it gets hard on Tuesday night or on Wednesday. Um, Then that's when it's going to be hard. Right now, I feel like a pastor who's doing pre-marriage counseling with a young couple who's never been married before. 
and, and they hear you talk about the, the struggles of marriage and the challenges of marriage and the, the good parts of marriage, but then the, the challenges, and they just have a glaze over their eyes. And you know they're thinking, oh, Pastor Glenn, thank you for sharing this. And I know it applies to other couples, but none of this applies to us, Pastor Glenn, because we have found true love. And, and you see, we're kind of in the same place. I'm in kind of the same place right now. You see, we're all hoping that our candidate is gonna win on Tuesday. And the last time I checked the Las Vegas odds, uh, the odds makers were calling it 50-50. As I share this right now with you, the chances are like flipping a coin, 50-50. And, and so uh, we're all in support of our particular candidate. We're hoping for the best. And we should pray for our candidate to win. We should hope with all of our heart that our candidate wins. I am. But once it's all over, we need to embrace the result that our fellow citizens and ultimately God has given to us. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, we must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. In the aftermath of the election, let's come together. We must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. One passage I found helpful in dealing with grief and Listen, I think we need to acknowledge that how the election turns out, it's going to be good for some, and it is going to be grief for others within our country, uh, within our families, within our church families. There are going to be, depending on the outcome, it'll be different groups of people, but there are going to be people grieving. And there's a passage I found so helpful, and I'm not comparing the loss of uh, your candidate losing an election, I'm not comparing that to the loss of a child, uh, which is the greatest loss there is, a hundred times worse, a thousand times worse than any other loss. And I'm not comparing that to the loss of an election. But but there is going to be a a grief after the election for many people. And, And this is how... Uh, David handled his grief. Uh, He was praying for his child who was sick to get well, and then God chose um, not to allow that to happen. And we pick up the story after the child dies. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him and he will not return to me. He's in heaven. I'm gonna go meet him in heaven. So now I'm gonna move on with my life. Heaven will make everything right in the end. Um, And so we are, many will be grieving the result of the election. But we, like David, we, we pray hard between now and Tuesday. And then once the results are in, We bow down like David and we worship the Lord and then we come together and we move on with our lives. 
while I was preparing this message, my sister Carol D uh, gave me a call. And I love my sister and my sister loves me. And I love Jesus and my sister loves Jesus. But I tell you, despite all those things, we have canceled each other's vote every presidential election since I got the vote. I'm, she's my big sister. So since I got the vote in 1976, got to vote, every election we've canceled each other out since Jimmy Carter versus Gerald Ford. As soon as I got the vote, I used it to cancel out my sister's vote. And as I put the phone down, we both realized uh, come Wednesday, one of us is going to be happy and one of us is going to be sad. On Wednesday, part of our church family is going to be happy and part of our church family is going to be grieving, is going to be sad. Romans 12, 15, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. But here's the part I want to emphasize, mourn with those who mourn. When the election is over, let's be especially sensitive to the feelings of our church family who will be mourning in the aftermath of the election. And then number nine, pray for the president, whoever it will be. Once the election's done, let's pray. God commands it. Uh, Paul was writing to a young pastor that he was mentoring named Timothy. And he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, uh, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is orchestrating what happens in the election on Tuesday and his number one priority is not that one political party wins or the other political party wins. His number one priority, and it should be our priority as well, is that situations will happen in our country. Events will be orchestrated so that people, he wants all people to be saved and all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then number 10, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, there are so many of us are afraid of what's gonna happen after the election. We're afraid of the results of the election, but also what's gonna be the aftermath? You know, is there gonna be civil war in our country? What's gonna happen? I've heard so many people voice that fear And so I just want to give you this word of comfort uh, here today. Isaiah 41. So do not fear, God says, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, in just the few minutes we have left, let's pivot now and spend the rest of the time introducing what our study is going to be for the rest of November. And I think it's going to be perfect, a perfect post-election study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, we're going to look at it from a, with a different lens in the month of November. Post-election, we're going to look at it with a different lens. Uh, Daniel, it's not just a story of faith where we just look at stories like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace or Daniel in the lion's den and say, if you trust in God, he'll work things out in the end. It is a, a book of uh, stories of faith, but that's not just what it is. 
It's not just a group of prophecies. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a prophecy from the book of Daniel uh, concerning the second coming of Jesus. But the most amazing prophecies of Daniel have to do with historical events that we know to have happened exactly the way Daniel predicted them centuries before they happened. And these prophecies are so specific that for years, critics of the Bible used to insist that Daniel had to have been written later because it was so specific, it was like he was writing history and not prophecy. But then with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946, we realized that Daniel was written before the events that it prophesied. So you can use the book of Daniel as a way to encourage your faith. You can use it to confirm the accuracy of the Bible. You can use it for prophecy. But for the month of November, we're going to use it. We're going to put on a different set of lens to study it as it is also a guide for how to live in, quote, Babylon which in the Bible is a symbol for the non-Christian or post-Christian culture, for a non-Christian culture like Daniel was in or a post-Christian culture. Larry Osborne writes, we live in a world gone haywire. Our moral fabric seems to be decaying at breakneck speed. Things that were once shamefully hidden are now publicly celebrated. The previously unimaginable has become commonplace. In a few short decades, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to outright hostility. And, and Peter uh, knew that it was going to be this way. And so when he wrote to his uh, readers in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, uh, to the ones that were there in the first century AD, but it was for us in the 20th century as well, the 21st century as well, he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, uh, Babylon is not our home. The new Jerusalem is our ultimate home. So we are foreigners here and exiles here to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans, and this is not a negative pejorative term, oh you pagans, it was actually a technical term for anybody in the Roman Empire that was not yet following Jesus. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day uh, that he visits us. Uh, you can see this in Daniel's approach uh, to life in Babylon. In Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar was so evil and Yes, Judah had turned their backs on God and, and they had been warned over and over again about the coming judgment of God. They had so much injustice in, in their country and they had so much sin against God in their country and the prophets warned them for centuries and they ignored the warning. So yes, they deserved to be judged by God, but oh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were far worse and yet it says, and the Lord is the one that did this. Uh, the Lord is the one that came and, and caused them to be taken into exile. And, and uh, Daniel was one of those. He was living an easy, wonderful life in Jerusalem. Uh, he just had a tremendous future in, in front of him. And then this king comes 
and, and takes him from his home country along with his friends and takes him to a foreign country and, and all of a sudden his dream has turned into a nightmare. But here's what helped Daniel to not just survive but to thrive in Babylon. Larry Osborne says he understood an important principle. He knew that God was in control of who. God was in control of who was in control. Nebuchadnezzar was in control, but God was in control of Nebuchadnezzar. When the Lord is behind everything, it changes everything. God is bigger, was bigger than Daniel's Babylon. God is bigger than our Babylon. Now what made Babylon so bad? Well, first of all, they had a godless king. Nebuchadnezzar was an egomaniac known to be hot-headed, murderous, vain, unreasonable, and incredibly cruel. He once threatened to kill all of his advisors because they wouldn't interpret his dream. But, but here's how unreasonable the request was. He says, I'm gonna kill you all if you can't tell me what I dreamed last night. Just, just not if you can't interpret my dream. He was so um, unreasonable, he said, I'm gonna kill all of you if you don't tell me what I dreamed last night. Uh, he was a godless king. Uh, there was a godless religious and educational system. Uh, the state-sponsored religion was satanic, and the core curriculum in the schools of higher learning included a large dose of astrology and the occult. Uh, the education that Daniel was forced to complete was designed to certify him as an enchanter and as a magician. He was forced to become an expert in the dark practices of the occult. And also it was a spiritually hostile environment. Uh, just one example of this was Daniel being forced to change his name. His name Daniel in the Hebrew means God is my judge. His name meant God is my judge. And he was forced to change it to Belteshazzar which means Bel's prince after the demonic god of the Babylonians named Marduk. So it would be like being forced to change your name from Christian to Satan's prince. Uh, Daniel's dream had turned into a nightmare. But in the midst of his nightmare, God showed up and gave Daniel a plan and a path to follow. And by following it, Daniel didn't just survive his time in Babylon. He thrived in the most unlikely of places. Now, one of the hardest things to understand is why does God sometimes let the bad guys win? Now, there are many, many reasons for this taught in the Bible. But here's one reason that applies to what happened to Daniel uh, being taken to, to Babylon. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline, God is treating you as his children. And those, so this is, explains how God could use the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar who were not his children to discipline um, Daniel and the nation of Israel who were his children because a, a father and a mother discipline their own children. They don't discipline somebody else's children. So God was using Babylon to discipline Israel for her sin and injustice even though Babylon was far worse than Israel. 
Habakkuk was a prophet who really wrestled with why God let the bad guys, Babylon, win over the good guys who were Israel. And at the end of his book, he recommits himself, after wrestling with this, he recommits himself to following God even when God lets the bad guys win. Uh, Habakkuk chapter three, uh, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, there's our word for this week, yet, whatever happens this week, yet, whatever happens on Tuesday, yet, whatever happens after Tuesday, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Oh Lord, I pray with my wonderful church family who I love so much as their pastor. Lord, whatever happens this coming week, we trust in you. And whatever happens, we will follow you and you alone. In Jesus' name. And all God's family, wherever you are, say it together with me said, amen and amen.